Greetings. Hello. Welcome to Spout, Thomas Nelson's spoken word podcast. We are here to share any and all things spoken, written, fiction, nonfiction, stories, poetry, creative writings, opinions, speeches. Do you have something you'd like to share? Contact us at thomasnelson.edu in, virtual, in the virtual studio. Uh, today I have Thomas Roxon, a Thomas Nelson English and Literature instructor with me. Hey Tom, how are you? Hi. What a beautiful day we have outside today. It is a gorgeous day. So, how long have you been an instructor here at Thomas Nelson? I've been at Thomas Nelson a little over 10 years, uh, and I've also been teaching in the VCCS uh, previously at Rappahannock Community College for almost nine, oh, actually almost 10 years. That's a lot of experience. 20 years, roughly, uh, as uh, an English teacher, a teacher of composition and literature. You must really love it. I do, right? Especially the literature part. I, I really enjoy sharing poetry with my students and uh, with anyone. So you get a lot of inspiration from your students. I mean, so when you give, you know, assignments or, uh, uh, you know, reference paper, whatever it may be to students, do you mm-hmm. find that they keep your love of literature alive and have opinions and points of view that you really didn't, you know, come from, you know? Sometimes they share ideas on poems that I thought I really knew very well, and then they surprise me with an interpretation that is um, uh, you know, a little off the wall or a little bit different from what I uh, have always understood. And uh, so, yeah, I do find that students, um, their enthusiasm for the poetry and their appreciation uh, when they discover that there are deeper meanings in the poem, I think that's, um, that's what keeps me going and keeps me interested in teaching literature. Fantastic. That's what makes literature a living, isn't it? Exactly. It, you know, it's relative, yeah. it's interpretation, it's it's inspiration, it's time, it's culture, it's all those things. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. That's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast at Thomas Nelson. Um, so did you want to share any uh, thoughts on, or for your students today, on, on uh, literature or writing? I think uh, probably the most important reason why we read poetry at all uh, and a lot of students will sometimes, if they're coming into my classes from disciplines that aren't grounded in uh, the humanities, they may say, why is this important? Why do I need to read poetry? And um, I don't know that anybody really needs to read poetry, but we get pleasure from it. And I think that's the number one most important reason to read anything, uh, and particularly poetry. It doesn't have a use in the world other than to um, bring us a little closer to our understanding of beauty and give us joy. So um, you read whatever makes you happy. And you, you, know, you find the poems that, uh, that work for you, and, or you write the poems that work for you, and you just take pleasure in writing um, creatively and uh, playing with words. You know, I think poetry is kind of a game. You play with words. I think that's a beautiful thought when you said... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you read it or you write it for the beauty, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that you feel from it. And that's, I think that's very important in the world today. I mean, we all remember or have students or others have said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm never going to use this. Right. But it can really open up, you know, frames of thought, mm-hmm. ideas, streams of consciousness, these things that, you know, maybe you never really considered before. Yeah. And some of it also connects you to other people with different perspectives and from other parts of the world. I teach... Um, for many years, I taught um, predominantly world literature, 
And uh, so the, the poetry that I taught goes all the way back to about 3000 B.C., uh, and uh, uh, and 2500 BC with the um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. and all the way forward. And so, um, teaching poetry is also uh, and studying poetry is also about learning the the development of human civilization and all the the incredible changes that have happened over the thousands of years uh, as human beings um, developed the uh, vast and and vastly different cultures uh, and vastly different takes on um, the fundamental things of being human, like death, um, the afterlife, and so on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, something that comes to mind for me is Dante. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's a bit older. It's not as old as Gilgamesh, but it's a bit older. And, uh, you know, it gives us an insight into what they thought about the afterlife and, and, uh, you know, morality. Even the smallest things, I think, sometimes as as you know minuscule as what are they eating mm-hmm. how are they speaking what is the rhythm right all those things i just find fascinating but i just yeah. i think i find history fascinating and and this is just poetry and writing and creative uh, literature or or you know even if it is fiction nonfiction, fiction gives us real insight mm-hmm. uh, to the growth and uh the beauty yeah. of hum- human nature i guess yeah yeah and it shows us uh that Despite big differences between our age and past ages, there are also commonalities. And the poetry can link us to the past as well as linking us to other people in the present day who are different than we are. Now, you know, I'm sure you have quite a few favorites. Is, is mm-hmm. there some particular, you know, author uh, that really, string, um, really speaks to you or, mm-hmm. you know, a couple... Yeah, I am a big fan of medieval literature, and I teach uh, medieval lit um, uh, now uh, a little more heavily than than the, the world literature that I used to teach. Um, I'm teaching it this semester, in fact. Medieval lit um, has a special place for me. I love Chaucer, um, and then coming into the Renaissance, I love Shakespeare. Um, I love older stuff. For me, the older it is, the better. But my favorite poet is John Keats. Okay. And he speaks to me more directly and more personally, I think, than any other poet um, that I could name. Uh, and his poetry is just so uh, so exquisitely beautiful that um, reading just one of his poems is, uh, for me, a cathartic experience and a very powerful um, uh, connection to what is beautiful in the world. And he wrote so much about beauty. Uh, yeah. that, that's fantastic. Do you have a, a title you'd like to share? Like, I mean, you know, maybe someone who doesn't read a lot of poetry. Is mm-hmm. there a title, you know, that you think uh, is impactful that maybe the layman would really enjoy? Um, well, there Don't are, need to put there, you on yeah, the spot. There are so many. And I, had, uh, I have poetry uh, prepared to share today, although it's not Keats. Um, but I do have some beautiful poems uh, to share and my parodies on those poems. I like to write parody poetry and, uh, and light verse. Uh, I tried my hand at serious poetry. I'm not too good at it. Uh, I don't think I have that kind of a, a soul. Um, uh, I would love to be able to write like John Keats and have a soul that John Keats had as a poet. But um, I think my spirit is more uh, geared toward humor 
Um, and I like to use oh, humor in the classroom. We definitely need hu- uh, humor in the world today. That's oh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so how, how does the, your process work in that? So mm-hmm. you have a poem you love, and mm-hmm. does it like spark a, po- a parody idea for you? Mm-hmm. And and then you just kind of go on from there. Yeah, I, I find humor in just about everything around me, especially the literature that I love. And uh, so I, you know, I like to write parodies of the poems that I love the most and that I think are gorgeous. Uh, but there's always a little something about the poem or the poet uh, that um, sparks an idea or that seems um, in need of maybe having a little bit of the air let out of it because poetry can uh, sometimes um, uh, seem a bit pretentious, right? And, and right, especially you were you were speaking earlier about the the older you know literature yeah. or poetry, and that you know you're speaking old English, Shakespeare, beautiful, beautiful language, mm-hmm. but doesn't gel necessarily with our new new English that we speak in this day and age. So yeah. interpretation may be hard for a little bit hard for folks. Yeah, interpretation is hard, and sometimes uh, when I, when I started uh, as an English uh, student, as an English major in college, I encountered poems that stumped me and that made me think why is this poetry it doesn't make sense right it it didn't connect on a rational level and i had to learn that poetry isn't just a rational expression of ideas the way conversation may be a rational expression of ideas poetry is playing with words and playing with sounds and images so it took me a while to understand why certain poems are cherished and why they're beautiful and why they're uh, interesting works of art so um, but they seemed to me and they often seem to many of my students very pretentious things that are extremely opaque very hard to understand and that seem again useless in the world right why do we do this and, and who thinks that's a, you know uh, they all my students will often ask me after I read a complex and, and odd poem They'll say, what was that poet smoking when he wrote that, Mr. Roxon, right? <laughs> right. And I say, well, you know, nothing in particular, although this poet over here probably was smoking something. Right. And so we have, um, you know, I like to uh, take a humorous uh, approach to um, helping them appreciate who these poets it were. It opens a dialogue. Yeah. It opens a dialogue. And the interpretation, I imagine, so after you do go through a little bit of the interpretation and speak about maybe this was stream of consciousness or this is what was going on in history and why this means this, are they really, do, do they then kind of really see, you know, see the interest and it does it spark in them, oh, I get it now, yeah. you know. And I try to draw connections uh, between the poets in their day and the values that they held and, and the values they were expressing through the poetry and the things that students enjoy today. So, for instance, uh, when I teach the Romantics, and that's my favorite period of uh, poetic history, despite the fact it's, it's not as old as Gilgamesh or Chaucer, uh, but I love the English Romantics, and Keats is one of the English Romantics. And when I teach them, I teach the values of the Romantic movement, I demonstrate them in the poetry, and then I show students that those values have never disappeared from our society. The, the Romantics changed us. They made us who we are today in, in a big way um, when we think about um, uh, conservation of the environment, saving the whales and the trees, right? And, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of those kinds of things are values that came down to us from the Romantic poets who were the tree huggers of the 19th century, right? I can I can see that. Yeah. I can draw that uh, connection. And so I tell students, go out into the pop music world. 
just run all your favorite songs through your head. And you're going to find examples, and I, I give them extra credit for sharing examples, of pop music that expresses the values of the Romantic movement today. It's still alive and still part of what we do in the creative music world or um, just it's a part of our spirit. I'll say it's part of the human heart for yeah. sure. Yeah. So today um, you were going to do a couple of your uh, parody poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how, how would you like to start that? Did you want to give us a, a reading of the original poem and follow, you're going to follow up with your parody or you explain that to me? That's usually what I do. Because to us, excuse me. Oops. Okay, there we go. I've got my poems on my computer here, and I'm going to need to log in again. But while I'm doing that, um, yeah, that's what I like to do, is that I will um, share the original poem first and um, talk just a a little bit about um, why I felt this poem was, first of all, uh, a beautiful poem and an interesting poem, but then also um, uh, what makes it ripe for parody. Uh, why does this poem need to have a little of the air let out of it, right? Because, uh, and uh, I'll start with um, a poem by Wallace Stevens. Sounds like great fun. <clears throat> it is, right? And I have so much fun. I, I write a parody poem once every couple of years, uh, but um, but I have a small collection of them at this point. So um, Wallace Stevens was a modern poet in the, uh, he wrote during the 30s and uh, 40s, I believe, um, I'm not all that big on modern poetry. I kind of avoided it in graduate school because this was the stuff that I found very opaque and very difficult. Okay. So here's a poem of his called Anecdote of the Jar. Very famous poem and very difficult. Uh, it's subject to all kinds of interpretations. And the short version of it is that I think it's a poem in which Wallace Stevens is sharing ideas about aesthetics, about what is beauty and about the contrast between art and nature and how poets and artists tend to um, impose an arbitrary structure upon the natural world when they create something. Uh, Art uh, or just the mind of the artist has a way of pulling things from the periphery of the natural world and rearranging them in order to make a thing that is beautiful. So, but it's a very dense poem, very deep poem. It's often anthologized, and we're yep, we're getting some. Wow, do you hear the jets? The jets, yeah. Yeah. That's a common experience at Thomas Nelson. It is. We are in the podcast studio (laughs) with the door closed. Yeah, you know, I have headphones on, and uh, we can still hear the jets. But that's okay. We'll give them a moment. Hey, that's the world we live in. They protect us. Thank you for your service, Air Force. Right. That's right. Yep. (laughs) All right. Uh, so yeah, Wallace Stevens, uh, his poem is, is frequently anthologized, and so undergraduate students new to poetry encounter this very difficult poem often, and um, and they say, "What the heck does that mean?" So um, and I, I share their uh, their pain, right? <laughs> <laughs> so here's uh, anecdote of the jar by Wallace Stevens. I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was upon a hill it made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill the wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around no longer wild the jar was round upon the ground and tall and of a port in air it took dominion everywhere the jar was gray and bare it did not give of bird or bush 
like nothing else in Tennessee. And you can see that's a difficult poem for students. I was visualizing that. I was visualizing that, and I can see how uh, that might be difficult to interpret. Yeah. The jar is a human creation. It's an artifact uh, of a human culture. Disrupting nature, right? Disrupting nature and pulling nature to surround the hill, as he said, right? Right. No longer wild. The, uh, the slovenly wilderness becomes ordered and structured and becomes a thing of beauty. So very difficult and dense, and I've always felt this poem needs to have the air let out of it. <laughs> and it was my students who gave me the idea of how to rewrite this and how to parody this poem. The title, Anecdote of the Jar. Anecdote is a word that often students stumble with a little bit. Um, it's not one we use um, in everyday conversation. And they will misread the word as antidote. Mm-hmm. which is one they're maybe more familiar with. So um, an antidote being right the, the, the counter for some kind of poison or sickness. Um, so I decided to write a parody called Antidote in a Jar. And this is my parody of Wallace Stevens' poem. I drank a jar of Tennessee white lightning up on Buzzsaw Hill, the kind grandpappy used to make in his old still. Next thing I knowed, I was in a fit and stumbling round like a two-year's child. It sat me hard upon the ground and made that hill spin round like wild. It swelled my tongue and growed my hair. Damn near killed me. I don't care. My Betty Lou runned off on me, the bestest gal in Tennessee. I love it. Oh, I love it. I, I do. I love it. Uh, you know, I'm originally from Alabama. I have uh-huh. a lot of people from the South. You sound like people I know do I, <laughs> in my family. I, I a often wonder, bit. yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I wonder uh, if my my accent is appropriate for Tennessee. I and, doubt it. But. And I don't mean that insulting at all. Yeah. At all. I mean that as a compliment, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you, when you started talking about what I, I thought was, you know, a, a still or moonshine or whatever, it, it, in my head it clicked and I said, wow. I didn't even consider that. Yeah. When we were we were during the original poem mm-hmm. that that jar, you know, might have been a mason <laughs> jar. Might have been a yeah. mason jar. <laughs> but absolutely, as soon as you said it, I saw it. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I had fun writing that one. And uh, what was the yeah. any some of the same reaction from your students? You know about that? They you know light bulb. Ah, oh. they enjoy it, and yeah. I think part of what they enjoy is that uh, when I do read my parodies, I like to do voices, and um, you know to um, to express the. Um, uh, maybe the culture uh, that I'm trying to capture, or just the the spirit of the and the tone of a poem with my sure, voice. Sure, that that tone definitely gives it a life. It lets you know that you're talking about, at least from my point of view, uh, something a little more rural, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. a little more country, if you will. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe southern, not necessarily, but maybe southern. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, it definitely gives a tone to it for sure. There's a little bit of dialect in the mm-hmm. way I write the poem, so that if you were to read it. Um, without a voice, without trying to capture that uh, persona of the the fellow on the hill drinking the white lightning, um, it, it wouldn't come across uh, the right way. Uh, you know, he says grandpappy rather than grandfather, right. and so on. Right. Uh, so, um, and then little expressions like uh, stumbling around like a two years child. Uh, that, that's a kind of curious way to say that, right? Uh, uh, like a toddler. 
Right. Um, Instead of saying I'm falling down drunk. <laughs> yeah, falling down drunk would be the cliched kind right, of way of saying right, it. Right, exactly. right, 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 yeah. for sure. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, wow, lost my train of thought there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, when, when you're talking, oh, that's where I was going, was with rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you decided to do this parody, did you look at the rhythm of, you know, the rhythm of the words and the syllables and and use that also because, I mean, different areas around the country, different dialects, we have different rhythm, meters, etc., right? Yeah. And when I write a parody poem, uh, I like to try to adhere to the rhythm of the original, if I can, and even the rhyme scheme. I, I save some of the rhyme words. So uh, in the Wallace Stevens poem, uh, he plays with the word uh, wild. Um, uh, he says, the wilderness rose up to it, the jar, and sprawled around no longer wild. So I held on to that word, and I used it in my second stanza. It sat me hard upon the ground and made that hill spin round like wild. And so uh, the ideas are coming to me from the original poem, and I'm trying to preserve the rhyme scheme if I can. Also, I am noticing that... um, uh, the first two lines of both poems use the same rhyme sounds and the same words. Uh, Wallace Stevens' poem, I placed a jar in Tennessee and round it was upon a hill. And then my first two lines, I drank a jar of Tennessee white lightning up on Buzzsaw Hill. Same words, right? And uh, Or if I couldn't hit the exact words, I would hit the same rhyme sounds to the fullest extent. Right. No, that yeah. makes perfect sense because we all know poetry doesn't have to rhyme. Mm-hmm. But now, if you're doing a parody, which is a play off another poem, then you certainly want to hit. That's right. You know, hit those uh, the rhythm, I guess, if you want to call it, or syllables, or whatever it is you're you're you know hitting to make it consistent. Yeah. Right. You want a parody to be recognizable as something um, inspired by and drawn from the original. Uh, poem that it's parodying so right yeah. so would you say that your parody of this poem is your interpretation of maybe what he was trying to say about the mason jar or is that just your imagination taking it on and yeah, or in, both, in or this any. case <laughs> in this case uh this is a little different from a lot of the parodies that i do write my strategy with parodies also is to take the meaning of the original poem and flip it on its head whatever the poet is trying to say um i'll turn it around and, and make the opposite expression. Uh, and I, here's a parody uh, that I'm working on, and it's given me some difficulty, but I have the first few lines of it in my head. Um, John Keats's famous poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, is a poem about the uselessness of beauty in the world. It is uh, not something that has a practical or... Um, uh, uh, yeah, I guess a practical value. Yeah. It's not pragmatic. That's yeah, what you're pragmatic. trying to say. It's, it's, it's nice to look at, but does it really do anything for you? It's not Maybe. utilitarian, right? right? That's yeah. I think that was right. what I was kind of groping for yeah. there. Um, but it speaks to our souls, and it and it um, it does so by exposing us to beauty, to exquisite beauty. So um, that very famous poem uh, about the Grecian urn that teaches Keats, as he says at the end of the poem that uh, beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye need to know on earth. Uh, I'm, I'm misquoting him there. Right. but um, 
Yeah, that but, is all but you to know that end, you need to know. Right, but to that end, your beauty is different than my beauty. Is different from her beauty or his beauty or anyone's beauty, right? Yes, So, yes. so it's, you know, very relative. Right? So what I decided was I'm going to flip that on its head. Keats uh, says um, the Grecian urn has no utilitarian purpose in the world, no practical use, but it simply teaches us beauty and truth are one. So let me play with that, flip it on its head, and my first... Um, lines of my parody are um, O Grecian urn I kid you not you'd make a perfect flower pot and so giving the urn a purpose in the world well, right? you definitely yeah. did that hit, hit the nail right on the head I think that's a perfect uh, usage of a Grecian urn right? now I just need to write the and rest I of that th- poem right, yeah. right on now I think it's going to be more beautiful when you put the flower in it you and know when, when I mean? the flower goes exactly <laughs> and it grows, right? right yeah yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, I love it. So did you want? Did you have another poem or parody you wanted to share with us today? Let me share another one that um, I had a couple in mind. And I'm sure. going to go with a different one than actually I uh, originally thought of. Just to, um, uh, just to continue the thoughts we are having about um, flipping a poem on its head. Okay, um, sounds good. So I'm uh, hi, read, Jets. Yep, they're, hi, they're, they're there back. There are Jets yep. again. I'm going to read one that does exactly that. And this is more typical of what I try to do with parody poetry. Um, This is a 17th century poem uh, by Sir Charles Sedley. And um, he's playing around with the ideas of what they call Petrarchism, which was um, a motif uh, and a practice in poetry for hundreds of years in which uh, the poet would um, write about a lady who was um, the object of his um, adoration and also um, probably the object of his um, uh, spiritual urge to be um, a better person. Uh, uh, So she was a a figure of purity, uh, moral perfection, spiritual perfection, but also earthly beauty. So kind of like a Virgin Mary. Virgin Mary, exactly, (laughs) right? So, um, and they would praise the lady, and this is, uh, here's where it probably differs from the Virgin Mary. They would praise the lady's physical beauty, um, going part by part, right, uh, okay. and comparing her to nature and showing how, um, in some ways, the lady's beauty surpasses that of nature. Uh, her eyes shine brighter than the sun. Her hair is uh, more brilliant than gold and so on. Fantastic. So here is Sir, Sir, uh, Sir Charles Sedley writing and playing around with that idea but sort of attacking it a little bit. Um, by the 17th century, it was pretty old and um, poking a little fun at it. And then I poked fun at his poem. His uh, poem is called To Chloris, and he says, Chloris, I cannot say your eyes did my unwary heart surprise, nor will I swear it was your face, your shape, or any nameless grace. For you are so entirely fair to love a part injustice were. No drowning man can know which drop of water his last breath did stop. So, when the stars in heaven appear and join to make the night look clear, the light we know one's bounty call, but the obliging gift of all. He that does lips or hands adore deserves them only and no more. But I love all and every part, and nothing less can ease my heart. Cupid that lover weakly strikes who can express what tis he likes. 
right? So the idea there is, right, the, the Petrarchan poets of the centuries past who were enumerating the parts of the lady and talking about which part they liked the best are actually not quite suffering from love enough. Cupid's arrow strikes them too weakly oh. because they don't love the whole of the lady, right? Got you. Okay. Uh, um, Just pointing out fun poem, right? So, you know, very. I mean, I don't mean to sound strange. Very hormonal, maybe. Very, Absolutely. very surface. You know, in yep. the moment, what they're seeing in front of them, not so much the essence of the woman herself, right? No, not the essence of the woman, and not the totality of her physical beauty. I think is part of what um, right. uh, so Charles Sedley is saying. These are poems that, of course, objectify women, and in the modern day, um, we take a different approach, right? A different way of thinking about that. Um, but in uh, Sedley's day, um, right, this was the common Yeah, if you thing don't want to do. get Me too you better <laughs> take a different right. approach, Long right? before the Me Too movement. <laughs> right. So here's my parody of it. I flip it on its head. He sees the totality of the woman as the, uh, the thing to be cherished um, and not the individual parts. And so I wrote uh, to Chloris, Chloris, you have pretty eyes. And I would think them still a prize if they weren't even in your face, but plucked and staring into space. You're shapely, too, and I like curves composed of female flesh and nerves. So what if you were nothing more? I'd still have plenty to adore. And what if you were only lips, or cherub cheeks, or rounded hips, or hands, or toes, or knees, or chin? Oh, what a passion I'd be in, for I admire every part of you, each piece a work of art as much desired on its own as when they're all together sewn. I love you, dear, with all my heart. I'd love you even a la carte. I find that extremely humorous <laughs> and well done. Absolutely. Thank you. That, that really does shine a... Uh, uh, contradictory, not contradictory, but opposition, you know, yeah. to, to, to the previous poem. What would you say that Clotus, is it? To Chloris. To yeah, Chloris, Chloris, to Chloris. Yeah. Okay. No, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman, it, you know what, that really does speak to culture of that time, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a woman was just those things, uh, very superficial. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to dog men of, of the period at all. No. You know, culture changes and shifts. We are products of our culture. You that's know, right. no, no offense taken. That's right. Um, but uh, very, you know, her, her mind did not come up mm-hmm. no. <laughs> in that in that poem at all, or what she could offer, what opinion, anything. It was simply was yeah what you could see. It was uh, it's kind of curious in that exactly. Uh, uh, Sir Charles Sedley is um, uh, uh, criticizing a little bit the poets who saw only the individual parts and saying you really need to see all the parts together, but it's still parts. Right. And, and, you know, it's still just Still missing the soul, right? Still missing missing the the essential thing. This, you know, maybe quite beautiful, but Mm well-read, you know, courageous, caring person, and not just beautiful eyes and nice curves. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's fantastic. I I definitely like the way, you know, and I didn't, I was not aware that you were, and I was aware you wrote poetry, but I wasn't aware you wrote poetry that was a parody you know uh-huh. on other on other uh, other poets work and i really like that and and gosh i bet it really does help your students I, to to understand the poetry and i think that's such a, a an exemplary you know point of view and direction to take to you know get mm-hmm. them interested and share with them so they understand mm-hmm. and, and has think, it been successful 
It, it works in the classroom. I share my poems uh, every opportunity I get when I'm teaching a particular period, and I say, "Great, I've got a I've got a parody of Shakespeare here. I'm going to share with my students, or a parody of Chaucer." And um, I think it helps, first of all, to show them poetry is fun, right? Yes. And and second of all, um, it does by flipping the poem on its head. I think it does help them to then engineer back to the original poem and Absolutely. see its meaning. Right? and understand where, where where did I get that parody idea You said from. that much better than me, but that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> what I meant. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Um, so did did you want to share any additional poems or parodies? If uh, if we have time. You we know, certainly I have, have I have time. more, yep. Yeah, I'll share okay. another one. Um, going back to the modern era with uh, a colleague of uh, Wallace Stevens's, um, I have a poem here by um, John Crow Ransom, very famous uh, modern poet in the uh, 30s and 40s. And um, he also, I, I find his poetry beautiful, but sometimes difficult and dense. Um, this piece he wrote, I believe it, it may be a sonnet. I'm not sure. It's okay. broken up now, here. Now, excuse me. You said the 30s and 40s. So yeah. we're, we're talking about the 20th century. 19th 20th and century. 30s, 40s. So this is really modern. Very modern poetry. poetry. Okay. Um, and, uh, and the modern poets had a very, um, they had an attitude toward poetry uh, in the 20s, 30s, and, and 40s. T.S. Eliot uh, particularly is a good example of this, uh, that poetry should be rather opaque, that it wasn't for everyday people, um, that you needed to be somewhat educated, you needed to have skill with languages. T.S. Eliot could read and write eight different languages. Um, and and he used those languages in his poems. So as you're reading one of his works, you're seeing Latin, you're seeing Greek, you're seeing Italian. Uh, he demonstrated his erudition through the poetry. And it, it raised poetry up above um, uh, the common day experience. And I think that's probably why a lot of people see it as sort of pretentious. Uh, right, yeah. and that's what I was going to comment on. You know, it's great that you want to raise your art to to another level, but but sometimes when you exclude quote unquote the common man, yeah, uh, you know, not saying that's really good or bad. It just is, I guess. Yeah. But but that's how it can definitely get a label of being pretentious. Being pretentious, sure. and and it's the opposite of what the Romantics had in mind, which was to write a poetry that exalted the common man and that could be read by the common man. Right. Uh, now, so, for me, you know, uh, poetry that I like to read or that mm-hmm. I do read is uh, something that does, uh, you know, tells me a story about beauty, an idea, a thought, you know what I mean, opinion, you know, mm-hmm. you know, this beautiful forest, the jar yeah, <laughs> on the, the jar. hill, like, yep. you know, whatever it may be. And then when you get into to this poem here, I imagine it's not going to be quite as cut and dry. And this one is a little bit easier probably than Stephen's poem, uh, uh, The uh, Anecdote of the Jar. Um, It's a sonnet, and it's a fun, uh, I believe it's a sonnet, and it's a fun um, uh, treatment of um, characters, of personas. Uh, John Crow Ransom uh, wrote a poem called Piazza Peace, and it's, um, it's a poem about an elderly man trying to get the attention of a young and beautiful woman and failing, right, <laughs> as right uh, one might expect. So um, he, there are two voices here, and he splits the poem uh, between the two voices, first the elderly gentleman, then the young woman. 
And again, it's called Piazza Peace. I am a gentleman in a dust coat trying to make you hear. Your ears are soft and small and listen to an old man not at all. They want the young men's whispering and sighing. But see the roses on your trellis dying and hear the spectral singing of the moon? For I must have my lovely lady soon. I am a gentleman in a dust coat trying. I am a lady, young in beauty, waiting until my true love comes, and then we kiss. But what gray man among the vines is this, whose words are dry and faint as in a dream? Back from my trellis, sir, before I scream. I am a lady, young in beauty, waiting. So he's playing with the idea also there of the Carpe Diem poem, uh, where the old gentleman says in the first stanza of the poem, see the roses on your trellis dying and hear the spectral singing of the moon. Um, we don't have time, right? And I particularly don't have time. I'm elderly. Right? I, I totally took it that way. And also from a woman's point of view, that made me think of Childberry. Mm-hmm. It made me think of age mm-hmm. uh, and, and withering on the vine, the mm-hmm. moon, the cycles of the moon. That's what came to my mind, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the moon as a figure of uh, uh, Diana, the, the, uh, the virgin goddess, um, uh, the young lady, right, praying to the moon and preserving her virginity where the elderly lover in the, in, uh, in the garden down below. Now, you below. just took that way deeper than I did, and I mm-hmm. see exactly what you mean now when you mm-hmm. say this poem was probably a little more tough because I, mm-hmm. I'm, I was just scratching the surface with these mm-hmm. uh, first ideas or thoughts. About, no, you had, yeah. yeah you, well, I might be yeah. right on track, but it doesn't yeah. mean it's not deeper. And as a parent, you know, if you look back, in, like you said, into mm-hmm. Latin, into older literature, et cetera, there is a little bit more going on there. And these modern poets knew all of that mythology, right. and they wove it in in subtle ways into their poems so um so yeah i love this poem uh i I love the um the two personas that he creates and the way the lady uh has this um romantic notion about love right i am waiting until my true love comes and then we kiss she wants some young dashing man to come and sweep her off her feet exactly right a perfection uh, uh her concept of love so um once again sometimes it's the title of the poem a tweak to one word in the title gives me the idea. Uh, anecdote in the jar became antidote in a jar. And then piazza piece. Um, I'm thinking of an Italian piazza, right? Um, so I changed it to pizza place. Oh, nice. And now I've got an elderly man flirting with a young waitress in, um, in, a, in a pizza parlor. I'm old and fat and shouldn't have dessert. But you're the cutest waitress in them all, and I should know. I've ogled each and all. The blonde at Burgermeister likes to flirt, but has a boyfriend. She's just after tips. Cheesecake? Hmm, too heavy on the hips. Is the cannoli made with chocolate chips? I'm old and fat, and shouldn't have dessert. Look, bub, You're going to order something, right? I do have other tables, don't you know? Try the mascarpone. It's really light. Or tiramisu. That's coffee-flavored cream. My number? Yeah, not in your wildest dream. 
So what'll it be, Gramps? I ain't got all night. I love it. I love it. That's. <laughs> I, I was holding in my laugh, and I'm not just saying that. I'm uh-huh. saying it because we're on a podcast and people uh-huh. can't see me, uh-huh. but that was great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. I, I certainly... Uh, I love the juxtaposition, and I definitely, when you talk about reverse engineering, I could mm-hmm. definitely, definitely see it, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, really, to me, this poem is about, in both instances, about rejection. Rejection, yep. And I mean, yeah, that's simplified. Age versus yeah. youth, too, Sure, right? yeah. sure. Age before beauty mm-hmm. and all that's that. Right. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, your poetry with us today. I want to talk a little bit more about... Um, you mentioned that you are maybe trying to get the Poetry Club uh, mm-hmm. back up and come in. Is that mm-hmm. true? That's right. The Poetry Club is um, uh, kind of struggling right now because of the COVID-19 situation. We're having to have our meetings by uh, – oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the Gaming Club. Oh, okay. I sponsor two different clubs. No, that's fantastic. But um, the Poetry Club also is struggling because of COVID-19. And um, – I would love to see them get involved with this project because I think they would love it. They, uh, the poetry students here at Thomas Nelson do wonderful things with spoken word, um, and they, uh, they love to share their poetry. Some of them are a little shy about doing it in front of groups, but podcasting like this, I think they would find um, uh, very appealing and uh, uh, very accessible. They'd be able to share their poetry. That sounds wonderful. And yeah. and I would say, you, you know, I, I think both of us, this being our first spout, you mm-hmm. know, uh, we were both a little bit nervous today, but I think it went really well. Oh, yeah. I, I think that, uh, as we said, you know, uh, once you get talking, the, the conversation just flows. Yeah. And uh, I would definitely love for you to share this with your students. And uh, we'll, we'll reiterate again that... If you go to tncc.edu mm-hmm. backslash virtual studio, we have a request form there. Uh, anyone you know can request a podcast. Now you and I are connected here through mm-hmm. through Spout, so they can you know certainly you know go through you and me, etc. Uh, and I'd love to continue that and get our students and your poetry club. And uh, we're in here one on one, adhering to all CDC guidelines and yep. and whatnot. So we're good and safe. Um, I definitely look forward uh, to working with you in that. I, I enjoyed this very much, and I am looking forward to doing more of it. Yeah. I thank you so much. This was Spout, podcast at Thomas Nelson, and I'm Michelle Schonk, and this was instructor Thomas Tom Roxon. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. Have a great day. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. This oh. was fun. We're yeah. going to sign off now. Bye-bye. Bye.